Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so happy to have in the studio Rebecca Solnit. Um, I should say we're taping the show. It's the 20th of February, 2017. Rebecca, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. And for coming down to the studio. You're in You're in town. You're in Ann Arbor to do mm-hmm. a lecture um, titled Hope and Emergency. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the your talk? I was joking to the lovely Kush who brought me over here that I'm like a giant aspirin, a pro- similar coloring too, and that uh, after the election I was called up to say, could you come to Michigan and talk about hope because they really need it? <laughs> Michigan especially. <laughs> well, you guys had such an interesting election in that... Um, it was because re- I was in Grand Rapids right after. It was really weird. I also talked to a lot of people who are in Kobo Auditorium doing the recount who talk about how frantically the Republicans shut that thing down. I'm not actually convinced that Mr. Trump won Michigan. And the margin is so narrow that a really thorough hand re- recount should have happened to find out. But why do those things never seem to happen if it's the the Democrats that need to do the counting? Because the Democrats are, are are mild-mannered people full of facts that are usually right, and the Republicans are Tasmanian devils whirling around full of stories that are not factual but very compelling. And basically, you know, might is right, I think would be this really short version. They, they shut it down, and um, we'll never know, it seems like, because... The amount of error you find out. And I spend a bunch of time looking at the election. And, you know, we're always told, like, here's the numbers. And, like, the way we watch Clinton's margin climb and climb and climb, you're like, oh, all the votes aren't counted at the outset. It's approximate. Yet they declare a winner. And then you find out about voter suppression, whether it's cross-check or... All the other ways, uh, particularly millions of people of color are prevented from voting and the sheer sloppiness, the lack of standards, the fact that all this is carried out by local officials of various levels of probity. And you realize, like, if this was some third world country, we would think it was outrageously think we'd be corruptible <laughs> and illegitimate. But we kind of don't look that hard at uh, it for ourselves. And one of the things I think really needs to happen as part of the resistance to the Trump administration and the Republic and to break Republican power, um, hello, people, I am not neutral, is a massive voter rights movement like the 1960s, but not just for the South, because this is a really progressive country. If you if all the people of color in particular who have been disenfranchised were able to vote, you know, Republicans would be locked out of uh, presidential elections, and they know it, which is why uh, they've pursued uh, decades of campaigns of um, not trying to win votes, but to prevent people who don't vote from them from voting, poor people, students, and people of color. My current Harper's column is about that. It's called The Tyranny of the Minority, about the way that at some point in history, the Republicans took a look at the electorate with rising numbers of people of color and a Republican strategy of appealing to white resentment. They were doomed if demographics had their way. So they went to war on the demographics by disenfranchising all these people through the laws, the voter ID laws, cross-check, 
harassment at polls, um, the 6.6 million people who've been disenfranchised because um, most states don't let people convicted of felonies vote even after they've done their time. You know, you add that all up and you're looking at, I've never seen anybody do all the numbers, but, you know, well over 10 million, maybe 20 million, maybe more people who were not able to vote and you know that those were not mostly people dying to vote for Trump and the Republican agenda. And so the Republicans are winning a war on democracy, and that's how they're winning elections. And so we need to fight back, and democracy itself, uh, you know, one one person, one vote, would write this country's direction in a profound way. And uh, I really want to see that voting rights movement. I think it would be a great thing to enlist young people with the kind of idealism of freedom summer in 64 and the voting rights drives of that era that were focused on the south but we need it nationwide and i know eric holder said after the obama administration wound down he was going to pursue uh breaking up some of the extreme gerrymandering that's given a lot of states i know particularly in the midwest uh, particularly Ohio, completely bizarre um, representation where the representation in the state house and in Congress is very different than who's actually voting. There's a lot of, you know, the if you add up all the votes um, for the lower house of Congress, there's actually more people voting Democrat, but more Republicans taking office because of massive gerrymandering across the country. So the Republicans are a minority that hold the majority of power. And that's a deeply anti-democratic force that needs to be brought to light and then it needs to be reversed. Can't be mild-mannered anymore, I don't think. (laughs) I'm not sure what mild-mannered was good for. I love Michigan Nice. One of my best friends grew up in Detroit and and, uh, Lansing and Sam Green, the filmmaker. And um, and when I was in Grand Rapids, I was like, oh, yeah, Sam is not a uniquely lovely human being. He's just a, <laughs> he's just a Michiganer. So, and, so yeah, Michigan so nice? Like, n- nice, that, yeah. nice, yes, but not mild-mannered necessarily. Right, exactly. Yeah. I, um, Michigan's produced lots of the other stuff. I'm thinking of Michael Moore and a lot of powerhouses out of Detroit. Well, and I think if people Grace, had... the great Grace Lee Boggs. Oh yes, Grace yeah. Lee Boggs. Yeah, I got to meet her a few times when you I was did. writing about Detroit. She was so great. When you did the piece Detroit yeah. Arcadia for yeah. Harper's, or yeah, or... yeah, years ago when I was writing about Detroit, I visited her a few times, and she loved the work I was doing on Hope. She saw it as very aligned with what she was trying to do, and she was just one of the great figures of our time. You know, there's a hundred years um, of trajectory through the American left and to see her evolve through the kind of quotidian mid-century left-wing politics mm. to something that was much more kind of local and adaptive and and that she and Jimmy think, defined yeah yeah and the kind of grassroots um you know kind of compassionate radicalism that worked with what's actually there on the ground rather than kind of tried to force everything into theory was you know but with that with a brilliant theoretical mind behind it was pretty exciting i think um compassionate radicalism sounds like just what we Oh my need. god, it makes brings back George Bush's compassionate conservatism. <laughs> oh, I did not. That that wasn't I did not hear that echo, but now that you yeah. say it. <laughs> it's funny now. I'm old and so I remember all these things I hear on a college radio station that a lot of younger people don't remember. Uh, and one of the things that was scary 
was being terrified that would repeat the mistakes of the 2000 election where a lot of people were too pure to prevent George Bush by voting for Al Gore and right. saying there was no difference between the two, which nobody said after 2003 ever again. And and, um, and realizing like, wow, people are voting who were two in that election because if that was 16 years ago, you know, in November and 18-year-olds uh, vote, so... You know, so here I am in my mid-50s, a repository of history going back. And, you know, and of course, lots more that I've read about and uh, stuff like that. But you get older and you've just lived through a lot of the sort of twists and turns of your country. Because, Rebecca, I was thinking you've because you've written 18 books. I think it's 20. 19? I think we're looking 20? at little number oh, good, 20. I haven't updated Lord. lately. Number 20. Okay. Yeah. Um, so twenty no books. No called the mother of all questions. <laughs> it's because I'm the mother of twenty books. It's, exactly. <laughs> this one's been this one's been coming. Um, but so you're you're a writer, and then you also are doing like the the is it the armchair column for Harper's? Like, uh, the easy it? chair column. Or easy chair. Easy chair. Sorry. Yes. Easy chair. Armchair. Yes. Okay. Easy chair. And you were the first woman to to do this column on a regular basis. Yes, as well. which is very silly. It was begun in 1851. Right. It happened almost continuously. And I keep saying, like, why didn't they have Willa Cather take it over in 19, 1904? Why didn't they have Hannah Aaron take it over in 1954? Is you this going to be one of your columns? Or could you not do you it know, there, I wonder? I think, <laughs> you know, and at some point I might do, do a history of the column. Bernard DeVoto, the great Western historian, wrote it for a while. I also think everyone who's written the column regularly has been white. Thomas Frank, Mr. Or what's the matter with Kansas preceded me and um, mm. but oh but yeah. actually I did have before we get too yes. too far yes. into easy the chair. easy chair um, not that easy we got to get out of it right now <laughs> um, is that you've been a, you're a writer but you're also a public intellectual and whatever the hell that is that's what well that's what I wanted to ask you what is a public <laughs> intellectual you are talking about walking around like as a repository of yeah, this knowledge and yeah. also with someone who has a voice like for years you found a voice you it's have. been interesting you know you become uh a writer by staying home alone more than most normal people can stand and um you know and you stay home long enough and you write enough and then you start to reach people sometimes and then in a weird way you become a public figure by being more deeply and private than anyone else it's a very odd fate and then suddenly you realize that you've learned how to write but now you have to learn how to talk because you're going to be on the radio and on stage and all these sorts of things so none of this was anticipated and i don't know what a public intellectual is i think it's um you know and um but it's been really interesting, you know, as a young woman who was sort of exceptionally withdrawn and who was silenced in a lot of different ways, to be a no longer young woman who has a certain amount of reach and audibility and the ability to occasionally impact things and in, or reframe things. And reframe them and impact them. Um, in this book, the mother of all questions many thanks to jim plank at haymarket books for sending along um the the mother of all questions men explain things to me and also hope in the dark um my newest trilogy finished next well officially the pub date is next month but um there they are all three and they look and they look lovely i know like <laughs> yeah yeah blue black gold it's not that far from your, your school colors which are the same as berkeley's colors Oh, was this was this the blue uh, and gold? Um, did yeah. you 
did you choose the colors? Were these important, the colors well, for we, each? Well, Men Explain Things was three different shades of blue, and then it finally came out in this beautiful sort of ultramarine electric blue. And then Hope in the Dark, of course, had to be black. And then, like, what's gonna, the third thing going to be? And so it's sort of more like Safety Orange in the uh, <laughs> published version, but it was supposed to be Marigold. Marigold. But, you know... They're a small press who doesn't have too many rules, so we'll just make the next printing marigold. Which is probably why you choose to work with them as well, Haymarket Press. It's a yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a long story, but um, well, yes. Well, maybe we won't. Well, maybe we'll get to that one. Maybe we won't this hour. Um, but you're a friend of the show, Rebecca. So anytime Thank you. um, Thank you. you'd like to talk. Um, the beginning of the book, you start. You're talking about silence, which you mentioned just a a moment ago silence yeah in yeah your... yeah well and you know the book is a lot of you know it's about a dozen essays many of them published before about one of them the longest uh essay in the book it's more than 40 pages i think is called a short history of silence and it was really about the way that you can't describe everything that feminism addresses as silence but when you think about what does it mean to have membership to be a citizen to be a full participant to have rights and a lot of it can be said to have a voice and so being silenced is such a deep part of taking away people's humanity and whether you look at the ivy league universities that didn't admit women all the elected offices that many of which have still never had a woman for the president a lot of governorships and etc and um you know you can see just all the different arenas in which women you know and in, in which women were silenced were not allowed you know to not have agency over your own body whether it's date rape or re reproductive rights or marital um law is a kind of silence where you don't have a voice that can determine your fate and um you know so it felt like there was a huge question around silence but what's interesting about the essay i really thought i was going to write about the ways that women are silenced which range from very direct measures to prevent women from speaking including murder um to all the kind of subtle ways people are women are taught to sort of distrust and defer and be polite and don't be bossy and yeah don't 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 stand up don't yeah but i realize that you know silences are reciprocal that gender itself can you know gender roles are our systems of silencing that men achieve power by silencing parts of themselves and that i needed to talk about male silence as well and of course as a san franciscan I've spent my whole adolescence and adult life around gay men whose capacity for being insightful, warm, funny, emotive, affectionate, etc., often shed some light on what straight men sacrifice to be um, to be patriarchy when they are and what kinds of bur burdens they carry as well, what kinds of silences. And... Um, you know, and gay men taught me like, oh, this is not inherent in the male condition. It's just, just you know, social conditioning. Pa patriarchy. Social construction. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Let's take a short break and then we'll come back. Today on the program, Rebecca Solnit is here. Her latest book, The Mother of All Questions, out this March with Haymarket Press. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got the Liz behind the glass. We've got Kush Patel in our studio audience. Uh, we'll be right back.
Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. Um, I'm T. Hetzel today on the program. Rebecca Solnit is here. Um, Rebecca, uh, just before the break, we were talking about um, the the silencing and um, the, the what silence is and how and you when we were on break, you made this very astute connection to the election as well. And so I yeah, no, it occurred to me immediately that there's ways people are silenced individually in their families and classrooms and public spheres and professional spheres on the street and beds, etc. But there's also kind of mass silencing and slavery was one way to describe it would be a mass silencing where people had no jurisdiction over their own lives and fates and bodies. And but disenfranchisement is also a kind of silencing. Your vote is one of the ways you have a voice. And if you're active in local or national political life, it's not the only voice you have. But I think a really important thing that we should never forget is that Donald Trump is president, not only because the Electoral College silences a real Democratic vote. He did not win the majority of votes. And the system amplifies states like Wyoming and withers away the majority in states like California and New York with big populations. But that also Trump is only president because millions of people of color were not allowed to vote in various ways. And, um, you know, so they were silenced. So his presidency rests on a pall of silence that is a kind of discrimination and oppression. You know, he's became president through many kinds of anti-democracy as well as misogyny and outside intervention etc but i want to see all, an outside see intervention the, yeah well uh, russia that is a lot and comey <laughs> yeah. and that is a long other conversation but I, you know and that may not ever quite happen like that again but any further national election if we can have full enfranchisement, like across the South, where the Reverend William Barber says that we get all these people of color registered to vote into the polls, and there's massive voter sort of prevention there, mm -hmm. and and it's sort of the other new Jim Crow, and the South could flip too. And one of the beautiful things, I live in California, I spend time in New Mexico, I have friends in Arizona and uh, Nevada, is that the rising Latino population there is a blue tide that may flip even Texas in time if we have full enfranchisement. So, you know, the future... A good future for this country is paved on full enfranchisement. You know, the, the let, let's redo that. the The road to a good future for this country is fra is paved with full. I'll just do it again. The road to uh, you know the road forward for this country, the good the good path, I think, is paved with voter uh, registration drives, voting rights, full enfranchisement. That's how we get there. It's not the only thing we need to do, but it's a huge part of it. And I love also how you had noted, um, Rebecca, that it's been it's been a year, uh, not a year, it feels like a year, a month <laughs> um, since the election and that the resistance is happening. So because this, you know, there's hope like today, yeah. you're going to be talking about hope and emergency. And so this the resistance is hope. Yeah. You know, I did not expect resistance like this. I started out the, uh, trying to stop Trump the week after the election. And I was a little I was like. 
I was really cautious. I thought I might really be out on a limb if only a few people were really um, sort of there in full hue and cry that we should stop this guy. And it was so interesting. November, watch more and more and more people get on board. And by the time of the inauguration, you know, that um, there was a mass resistance in place. People had been setting up their immigrants' rights defenses and organizations and... Um, you know, it's been extraordinary. We're seeing government employees resist. We're seeing scientists who, for the most part, have remained very apolitical, which is seen as neutral, although there's nothing that's actually neutral, um, getting ready for their own march. They protested in Boston on the 19th, and uh, like thousands of them. And the Women's March, the day after the election, was the single largest demonstration in American history. And uh, it was international as well. There were it marches, was, sister it was, marches. But just, all over. Yeah, but just within this country, there's more than 4 million people, more than, well over 1% of the population. And it includes Included tiny towns like Nome and Homer, Alaska, and little tiny towns in Florida, and you know, and all, as well as the usual places where there were big, you know, the big cities with big numbers, and that was extraordinary. Those were people saying, "We will not just let these things happen." And we're here, yeah. And like then showing week, showing yeah. themselves, we're here. And a week later, the extraordinary. Um, when the ban was uh, imposed, the huge reactions that included Congress people and other elected officials going to the airports. John Lewis, the great civil rights hero, who really feels like a kind of thread of continuity from the lunch counter sit-ins of the early 60s to now, went to the Atlanta airport. And, uh, you know, it was extraordinary. The Women's March was very well organized over months, but this was spontaneous. Mm. And I know in San Francisco, I got there when there are 200 people there, there were 2,000 people when I left, and they stayed into, you know, throughout most of the night and shut shut down parts of the international terminal. Wonderful volunteer immigration lawyers showed up to try and represent the people who were being held. And, you know, and then the acting attorney general um, refused to enforce the ban. The Ninth Circuit overturned it. A judge in Virginia over, you know... Um, God, what did I forget? What exactly the te- the legal term is, but you know, also opposed it on different grounds, but just in so many different ways, from all the uh, sort of uh, Twitter handles and things for Alt National Park, Rogue, Rogue uh, NASA, etc. We're just seeing extraordinary insurrection, and the only power the president has is to give orders. Otherwise, the White House is just a boys' clubhouse. If people don't obey those orders, um, they have no power. And it really looks like everybody is asking themselves questions, you know, not almost everybody, not so much the Border Patrol and ICE and things like that, although maybe that's happening there, we don't know. But we're hearing Mm. um, and senior staff in the State Department and the Environmental Protection Agency and a lot of other um, arenas that the people who are often scorned as bureaucrats really have commitment and integrity. And a lot of them are also questioning what are they going to do? And I think and it, maybe slow down the process. Slow down the right? process, like subvert happened? it. It's yeah. also the White House is a sieve. It is the leakiest White House ever. And there was a story in the Washington Post last week that had nine unidentified sources. And it just feels like people, you and all, and it's kind of funny because, of course, Trump loved leaks when they're about Clinton's emails. And... Um, <laughs> but I love it. A lot of the major news outlets from ProPublica to 
um, some of the major newspapers and things have little things on their site saying, if you have a story you want to tell anonymously, here's how to do it. You know, these kind of like tip outlets for people to feel safe in leaking. And so, you know, it's the... Re- and so there's all kinds of resistance from physical blockades to these kinds of subtle non-cooperations. What, what do you think about the, the Supreme Court, though? Because if we're thinking about some like what people are doing already um, to resist, yeah, my worry I don't is know. The... I wish that had happened a year ago. I wish the Democrats, who have have some backbone now, but why had did... some sense then <laughs> and just said, like, we're not going to do any legislation until we clear this off the deck or something, because that was insane. I do love the people who are joking like, well, we shouldn't pick a Supreme Court justice in the president's last year because the the international betting is now kind of even that Trump will be impeached. And we're getting close to, I think, more than 50 percent of the public thinking he should be impeached. Yeah, but there some people are again saying so still don't fill the Supreme Court, like just don't don't fill it. And I don't know how long because they're last, a minority. Can they right. if they can obstruct it? Yeah. I have to say that the pick is. I worry that if he's rejected, we'll get somebody much more like Jeff Sessions or somebody, that this guy is um, erudite and well-informed and I think within a conservative framework relatively reasonable, which doesn't mean I'm for him, but means that there are conservatives and conservatives or there are conservatives and the radical right and that he's more the former than the latter. Mm. You know, so he has like the bull dog, the pit bull quality bit. of Scalia. Yes, yeah, Scalia. Yeah. Yeah. At, um, but, wow, how did we get here? Oh, because I wanted to ask what you were thinking yeah, about with yeah. that. Well, you know what? Let's take a short break. And then when we come back, Rebecca, do you mind like reading something I'd be delighted. from, from I'd be delighted. the latest? So in the trilogy, um, we've got the trilogy on the table with us. Um, men explain things to me, hope in the dark, untold histories with wild possibilities, and the newest, out in March, the mother of all questions with Haymarket Press. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. We'll be back. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Rebecca Solna is here. Um, 
Uh, Rebecca, thanks for picking all the songs for today's program, by the way. My pleasure. Kind of exciting to hear Black Flag again with Rise Above. At, um, you know, I was asked to uh, buy Powell's books to come up with a playlist for Hope in the Dark, and that was one of the songs. And, you know, that not only the words, but the spirit is, you know, pure resistance. I feel like I'm going to play that every morning when I wake up now. Um, and before before we go, um, before we talk about the mother of all questions, the latest book, I'll, I'll just read uh, Rebecca's bio in the back of the book. Writer, historian, and activist Rebecca Solnit is the author of 18 books. Well, no, now we know it's 20, so I'm just going to write 20. Depends on how you count. How are But I want to count like the way you're counting the books. You know, I have to go home and like look at them all and count because I haven't counted in a while. But I've been saying 18 for a while and I had one come out in October. And, and another this Atlas, one, Yeah, right? the last like Atlas. The... So, I, this is, so I finished a trilogy in October and this in a sense is a trilogy too, though it wasn't made in the same way. But we're, that's not the most interesting thing. Finish the bio well, and I'll read. <laughs> On we go. Um, let's see. Books about environment, landscape, community, art, politics, hope, and memory, including The Far Away, far away Nearby, A Paradise Built in Hell, The Extraordinary Communities That Arise in Disaster, A Field Guide to Getting Lost, Wanderlust, A History of Walking, Men Explain Things to Me, and River of Shadows, Edward Muybridge, and the Technological Wild West, for which he received Guggenheim, the National Books Critics Circle Award in Criticism, and the Lannan Literary Award. And more books, atlases of San Francisco and New Orleans and New York City now, right, mm -hmm. Rebecca? Um, a product of the California public education system from kindergarten to graduate school. She is a contributing editor, editor to Harper's and frequent contributor to the Guardian newspaper. So across the pond, that's nice to have a foot across the pond as well. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. But, um, did you want me to read? That would be great. Rebecca. Okay. This is from the title essay from the mother of all questions. Society's recipes for fulfillment seem to cause a great deal of unhappiness, both in those who are stigmatized for being unable or unwilling to carry them out, and in those who obey but don't find happiness. Of course, there are people with very standard-issue lives who are very happy. I know some of them, just as I know very happy childless and celibate monks, priests, and abbesses, gay divorcees, and everything in between. Last summer, my friend Emma was walked down the aisle by her father, with his husband following right behind on Emma's mother's arm. The four of them, plus Emma's new husband, are an exceptionally loving and close-knit family engaged in the pursuit of justice through politics. This summer, both of the weddings I went to had two grooms and no brides. In the first, one of the grooms wept because he'd been excluded from the right to marry for most of his life, and he had never thought he would see his own wedding. Still, the same old questions come buzzing around, though they often seem less like questions in a sort of enforcement system. In the traditional worldview, happiness is essentially private and selfish. Reasonable people pursue their self-interest, and when they do so successfully, they're supposed to be happy. The very definition of what it means to be human is narrow, and altruism, idealism, and public life, except in the forms of fame, status, or material success, have little place on the shopping list. The idea that a life should seek meaning seldom emerges, nor not only are the standard activities assumed to be inherently meaningful, they are treated as the only meaningful options. This means sort of basically marriage, children, and material comfort. There's more to life. Uh, this, that's a digression. Back to the text. <laughs> 
One of the reasons people lock on to motherhood as a key to feminine identity is the belief that children are the way to fulfill your capacity to love. But there's so many things to love besides one's own offspring, so many things that need love, so, many, so much other work love has to do in the world. There's a paradox at the, at the heart of the happiness question. Todd Cashton, a psychology professor at George Mason University, reported a few years ago on studies that concluded that people who think being happy is important are more likely to become depressed. He said, organizing your life around trying to become happier, making happiness the primary objective of life, gets in the way of actually becoming happy. So, and this is an essay that's about these questions I've gotten asked by weird interviewers, often in very hostile ways about why I didn't have children, you know, about whether I had a partner and things that sort of assumed all women want exactly the same thing, and that there's one recipe for happiness and you better pursue it or else. And, you know, and I know lots of people who are married with children who aren't happy and lots of people who aren't who are and women's lives can be as varied as men's lives and uh, you know men don't get asked whether they why they don't have children I've noticed which is what I now say to interviewers but back to back to the last paragraph about these damn questions and the title essay the mother of all questions you know, I, sp I talked about how I wanted to be like a rabbi who answers a question with a question. I did finally have my rabbinical moment in Britain. After the jet lag was over, I was interviewed on stage by a woman with a plummy, fluting accent. So, she trilled, you've been wounded by humanity and fled to the landscape for refuge. The implication was clear. I was an exceptionally sorry specimen on display, an outlier in the herd. I turned to the audience and asked in my flat American voice, have any of you ever been wounded by humanity? They laughed with me. In that moment, we knew that we're all weird, all in this together, and that addressing our own suffering while learning not to inflict it on others is part of the work we're all here to do, maybe most of it. So is love, which comes in many forms and can be directed at so many things. There are many questions in life worth asking, but perhaps if we're wise, we can understand that not every question needs an answer. Thank you, Rebecca. You're welcome. <laughs> I'm so glad you read, chose that section to read. You know, there's a lot about gender violence in there. And it's like, okay, we're not just going to read more rape statistics, although I'm full of them. That's There's a lot in the mother of all questions. There's, yeah. There's, yeah. It yeah. doesn't have as many statistics about violence against women as the men explain things to me, but it's got plenty because the problem well, has not gone exists. away. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah. It's epic. And it's naturalized. And people keep talking about not normalizing Trump, but we normalize violence against women. I mean, th things that if there are other kinds of hate crimes happened, if, you know, like you talk about a woman being beaten in this country every 11 seconds, there's the statistics about a rape happening every few minutes, about the fact that one out of four, I think, women on campus in this country will be sexually assaulted and during their, you know, as part of their education. Like, is this one an education and being um, silenced and unvalued? Yeah. Yeah. And why are all our finest universities graduating such large crops of rapists? You know, there are a lot of questions about this, but I wanted to read from something else. And I, to go back to the, because you said it's from the title essay, what we just mm -hmm. heard, Rebecca. I just love the humor as well in the mother of all questions. Like just all the layers of that. And that. Um, Thank you. 
did you do yeah no it felt Humor like a important, perfect right i originally thought because of this big new essay on silence the book might have a title like silence is broken or something like that but that sounded so generic and then i really like this because i have a lot of sort of sentency titles a field guide to getting lost and um, a paradise built in hell are long titles uh, in the spirit of james baldwin one of the great title makers of all times <laughs> you know the fire next time go tell it on the mountain i yeah, and um yeah. So, but also men explain things to me is really about people who think they have answers when they don't. And so it felt like a perfect bookend, the mother of all questions about, <laughs> you know, about the value of questions of the unanswerable and open-ended inquiry and things like that. Because that's what we need more of now are more yeah, questions, more yeah. curiosity, more empathy. It's interesting. I'm writing my current Harper's column about hate. And I was thinking, what is the opposite of hate? And there's many things, you know, the conventional thing would be to say love, but there's a kind of closed mindedness about hate that assumes it already knows what, you know, the object of the wrath is. And I was thinking that in some sense, inquiry is opposite of hate. Yeah. Yeah, and you're usually interested in the people you love, although they may tell the same stories repeatedly <laughs> if you're with them for a while. But there's a kind of there's a kind of willingness to pay attention, a kind of attentiveness that is itself part of love. And I think whether that's part of the broader love I'm interested in, it's intellectual curiosity about how systems work, whether it's natural or social or political or psychological systems about what things mean. You know, there's a great philosophical, that examined life is not worth living, you know, the process of examination. Can it, it can be cross-examination, interrogation, even torture, but it can also be a kind of celebration of getting to know you. That's an amazing sentence to put together. <laughs> Torture yes. along with getting to know you. Well, I'm trying to describe the spectrum. Um, it's and, and you are, and you are. And that's what's also so amazing about The Mother of All Questions. I feel this book is um, so expansive. And these moments um, surface, like um, paying attention is the, is the foundational act of empathy. Yeah, yeah. No, there's a sense, and I wrote about it a lot in my book, The Far Way Nearby, at, um, you know, we tend to think that, um, we think of empathy and compassion as emotions, but they're also intellectual and imaginative qualities, you know, to... To harm the, before you harm someone, you have to kill off your capacity for empathy, which is fairly inherent. So you kill yourself a little bit first before you kill somebody, you know, or abuse somebody else. And the opposite, and there's a way you kind of wither and shrink into yourself. You know, if everything you 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 expand as you connect to things, and so you see people have these great, vast, expansive, inclusive selves, and you see people who are sort of deeply contracted. But empathy is an imaginative act to know, you know, what it's like to be the black man profiled by the police when you're a white woman, to know what it's like to be the old person when you're young and, and energetic, to know what it's like to be a refugee when you're native-born. You know, those are those take a little bit of imagination. It's a, it's a creative process and something, it's a storytelling process. We tell ourselves the stories of other people, and that creative act is how we enter into their lives. It's, you know, and I think some of it is instinctual. You see somebody you know, cut themselves and there's something inherent there. You know what it's like to slice your finger open or, you know, break your your 
leg or whatever. But um, but a lot of the more complex stuff is really imaginative, and so there's a kind of economy of stories that's crucial to. Um, you know, and then brings us back to silence. Whose stories are told and whose are not told? Whose are we taught to pay attention to and whose are we taught to ignore? Who are we taught to believe and who to, um, you know... Disregard. Or, or treat as an unreliable witness to their own experience. Which is so maddening. And more <laughs> than that, it's fundamental to racism and misogyny and transphobia yeah. and the rest of that, that I don't have to believe your experience. And I was seeing it on the Internet last night. A woman was talking about the incredible atmosphere of sexual harassment at her job at Uber and the complete unwillingness of the management to do anything about it. And she wrote it in an online uh, essay. And one of the first comments was from a guy named Adam, who's kind of like, do you have documentation? Because why should I believe you? And it was like, dude, you're exactly replicating the problem, which is that, you know, this woman was documenting and going to human resources who were telling her like, oh, we've never heard that before. Oh, that's not documented. Oh, this is the first time we heard about it oh we don't you know and how ironic that his name was adam too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but to have the the original comment there on the and that seems also in the book um the mother of all questions you're often returning to the fact that that it's the people who are most need to maybe be open or to listen or to imagine are the ones that right away say it's not happening. And that's the act of silencing. And I said in the title essay for Men Explain Things to Me uh, that uh, credibility is a survival tool to say that I, I had experiences where like someone was chasing me down the street and I told somebody who I thought might rescue me and he's like, I don't see anybody. And it's like, you know, it's like, I, you know, you are not and you it happens all the time with women who are raped being told like you imagined it. It didn't happen that way. You know, you just have mourning after regret, um, you know, and he said she said he said is often given a lot more weight. And, um, you know, and the same with racial stuff and where people are told that it didn't happen or they're treated as people who are not witnesses who credibility is a survival skill and it's a resource that's not distributed equally and it's it's insidious because when you're told these things even if you can resist them and you can tell yourself they did happen the amount of times being told it does wear a person down where you start it does people give not... up where it's like why should i bother they won't believe me and you heard that with uh, from a many of the women who came forward about bill cosby that until feminism changed the landscape um some of them had come forward and been told that nobody would believe them and they might as well give up and they couldn't they couldn't have a stronger voice than a famous man, et cetera. So it's also, you know, one of the ways to think about it is imagine Trump's behavior if it was done by a black man or a, or a woman of any color, whether it's a sort of lechery and, um, you know, general creepiness or the massive you know, monumental pathological lying, you know, that, that constantly lying about things that are provably not true, con contradicting yourself. Let's take a grotesque exaggerations, you know. But let's come back to that. This The yeah. idea of 
facts and alternative facts. We'll take a short break and let's dive in today on the program. Rebecca Solnit is here. Her latest book, The Mother of All Questions. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. What happened at the New Orleans? (laughs) Bitch, I'm back. I'm popular the man. Is corny with that Illuminati mess. Paparazzi catch my fly and my cocky fresh. I'm so reckless when I rock my Givenchy dress. I'm so possessive, so I rock his rock necklaces. My daddy Alabama, mama Louisiana. You mix that Negro with that Creole, make a Texas Bama. Welcome back. (laughs) You've got Living Writers. Today, Rebecca Solnit is here, and we just heard some Beyonce. I love Beyonce. (laughs) Who doesn't? Beyonce for president. Oh, one of the best (laughs) tweets about her pregnancy was like, she's efficient. She's carrying a president and a vice president. (laughs) Because of the twins. (laughs) That's great. Um, or something like that yeah well rebecca thanks so much for being on the on the program um You're and welcome. for picking the songs and yeah and most of all for um thinking these ideas writing these books and um also having the courage to to go out in the world and talk about them fiercely I said I once said I live a life of revenge on patriarchy after really that being be silent. A t-shirt. It could be. It could be. We haven't even made man explain things to me the t-shirt and tote bag and mug yet. But I was going to say that, you know, cuz I I have like most women I was silenced in a lot of different ways and it's kind of exciting to now be kind of unsilenceable and I'm, I'm not unharassable and I get harassed online regularly by men who kind of want to regulate what I say and then I block them and um, I mean haven't you they know, learned yet I feel yeah. like come no. on funny why do you ask no <laughs> yeah why no why no. yeah I shouldn't no. have asked yeah <laughs> but um, next question <laughs> well men explain things to me let's yeah. talk a little bit about this one because there's well it connects to the mother of all things you've got um, uh, the an mother essay. of all questions oh the mother of all questions <laughs> and things <laughs> I think that's a different goddess <laughs> Or maybe it's the next trilogy. I don't know. Um, it sounds like the God of Small Things by Andati Roy. Oh yes, it's like kind of. Yeah, um, but where were we? Uh, a friend uh, of the show. Men explain. Um, men explain things to me. What's the question? Well, the question was connecting to um, the book. We've got men um, in the Mother of All Questions. We've got an essay. Men explain Lolita to me. So I thought that was an interesting uh, connection back to the. This this essay of yours that started out and was just went viral. Men explain things to me. Yeah, no, I wrote it um, at my friend Marina's behest after joking for many years that I was going to write an essay called Men Explain Things to Me. And it just poured out. Evidently, I was re- more than ready to write it. It had been sort of in the subconscious yeah, yeah. percolating. But it also surprised me because it starts out with a very funny anecdote about a man sort of, speaking of silencing, talking 
talking, asking me what my book was about, and then basically talking over me to tell me about a very important book I should know about that turned out to be the book I was trying to tell him about because I wrote it. And that's actually, I think, is pretty funny and not a part. But this, as I wrote the essay, it shaded over into rape and murder, some of the ways that, you know, ways that women are silenced that, you know, are absolutely brutal and about this kind of massive gender imbalance of women who are often conditioned to think they don't know what they're talking about, which is why we like frame things as questions that we know are answers. And I still find myself politely saying like, well, maybe we should turn on this street rather than this is the route, you know, and uh, that sort of conditioning women have to doubt themselves even when they shouldn't, and that conditioning men often have to not doubt themselves when they should, and how that becomes, how that plays out as a something we used to call maybe a microaggression, but it can get very big when somebody silenced their whole career. And something I paid a lot of attention to is the appearance of Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, in 1962. And she was constantly discredited as hysterical and emotive and et cetera. You know, and even, even as science. not a scientist, right. even though she was a scientist, you know, with a master's, she, the only reason she didn't get a PhD in marine biology was because of Financial. poverty. You know, she was responsible for supporting her family and couldn't continue her program. And poverty silences, that's another Poverty is a huge uh, source of silence and then subjects you. And we don't have time here, but we were talking about lead and flint and things like that. And of course... Lead, the brain damage of lead poisoning could be thought of as a kind of silence and or mal malnutrition, lack of access to education and, um, you know, lack of um, lack of voting rights. At, um, there's some there's so many kinds of silencing and they're all interconnected as a kind of unequal distribution of power and rights. But but men explain things to me. Where With were so we? many people? I feel like it just it's still um it's so it resonates with so many people when you describe um it's not it's and you're very clear in the essay as well to say it's not all men yeah um but there are men who are like this who yes. should maybe doubt or question themselves more than they do and the amazing thing is is like every woman that i know has these experiences and it's not just one <laughs> yeah no i one of the most one of the most recent examples is an immigration lawyer who's talking about men explaining immigration law to her even though they don't actually know what they're talking about there's something up and she's a beautiful young woman there's something about the side of a beautiful young woman that makes a lot of men want to explain things well, and it, i was thinking it, about so that is in that my evolutionary view? like so is that no. sort of the no, peacock thing trying to Oops. be like <laughs> we'll just mark that one down. <laughs> just, just make it. Just make a Beyonce noise to cover it up. Swag. <laughs> what was I gonna say? What was I gonna say? No, it, no, it's not. A, you know, I, patriarchy is not inherent in the human condition. It's a social construct that's not. But we're so surrounded by it that it feels. Yeah, it's like not natural. There's it's like... a social construct, and we yeah. can overcome it. And it, it's interesting because there's a way we naturalize a lot of stuff. And there's an essay. I I really enjoyed writing in here called um, um, Escape from the Five Million Old Suburb. Um, 
about the stories people tell, a little bit less now, but about how human evolution was like men went out hunting and brought home the primordial mammoth bacon and women stu- stayed around, stuck around the hearth having babies and being dependent. And people are really attached to that story. And you look at all hunter-gatherer societies and they're not hunter societies or hunter-gatherer societies and women play a really crucial role. But we tell these stories where, you know, which is we're projecting kind of 1950s suburbia onto human evolution. We tell these stories about things being inherent in just the way they are as a way to tell people that, no, we can't change them. You just have to suck it up. But we can change them, and you do see people in places where that is not the case. And and I think it's changed a lot now in that we do have a lot of powerful women, and we do have a lot of men who are not patriarchy, who are happy to you know, listen to people who are informed, whatever their gender, and respect people who have knowledge, and et cetera. And something that I make clear in The Mother of All Questions is that patriarchy is a system that privileges men, but that men can many men resist and, and many women, you know, co- are, uh, cooperate with that it's not, you know, it's not a neat all women are feminists and all men are, are misogynists Fine. at all. And, you know, let alone that gender can be fun and blurry and is being questioned in interesting ways and by in this moment in time. And it is, isn't it? Yeah. So that's yeah. hopeful. Like, that's yeah. the thing. And it's and these um, the no, ungendered parent of all questions <laughs> that that is the next. That is the I think next. somebody else is going to write that book. I'm not sure I'm the best person to do it, but I'm glad that many versions of it are coming out. Yes. Or at least that I have you writing a lot more books. It's a 20 isn't enough, Rebecca. <laughs> keep, keep going, please. I'm trying. Um, I'm trying. I'm not done yet. And there's, but there is, so there is hope to this, thinking about the time, because sometimes it feels like, um, with with the election, with other things that have been happening in our government, um, and even even before the election, seeing the difficulties that Obama had with um, Congress working with him yeah. on things that would seem that they would be things for all people. Um, it doesn't have to divide party, go down party lines. It can be um, for all. But when you're talking about some of the moments that's like the that people we are we are changing, and there are people who are changing how they see the world and we have to keep this hope and one of the things about being older i am older than the current feminist movement and i look at the utter lack of rights and respect my mother had in her everyday life when i was born and the inequality that was really in the law and how and everything from Education and employment, where you had men's jobs and women's jobs li- listed separately, where sexual harassment was not even a cat- legal or a category. Policeman not helping your mother when she yeah. asked him to. Yeah, yeah, where domestic violence was not something the law really t- uh, t- and law enforcement took an interest in. You know, the civil rights movement wasn't full swing, but it hadn't accomplished much, and Jim Crow was a reality. So you look at slightly longer arcs of time, and you see tremendous change where Native Americans had a huge have regained. A huge amount of right and visibility. There was no real environmental movement when I was born. 
and there wasn't even a language in which to imagine these interconnected ecosystems on which we depend. And, um, you know, and so much else, um, you know, to be gay or lesbian or trans was to be treated as mentally ill or criminal or both in that dark early 60s era. Instead of seeing... Take out the dark. I'm (laughs) pro-darkness as something other than grim. But um, so, you know, so we've had extraordinary revolutions if you look at the long arc of history. And a lot of it is irreversible. You know, people are not going to think, you know, we're seeing enormous backlashes, but the genie never goes back into the bottle. And, um, you know, and we're winning a lot. And particularly, we need to tell these stories internationally and not just what was the U.S. election in November. So, and keep telling these stories. Oh, yeah. And finding your voices. Oh, yeah. Resistance. That too, that too. And persistence. Nevertheless, she persisted. Thank you so much, Rebecca Solnit, for talking to me today. You're welcome. Keep persisting, everybody. (laughs) And thank you. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. Production Studio A in downtown Ann Arbor. You're listening to the Daily Sports Report on 88.3 WCBN FM. Hello everyone out there. My name is Morris Fabri and you are listening to today's episode of the Daily Sports Report here on 88.3 WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Uh, Once again, I have nobody on the other side of the glass with me as I appear to be one of the few members of the sports department who is not somewhere sunny and warm right now, rest assured. It is cold and miserable outside this studio. So I guess I should be grateful to at least have a roof over my head. And, and you know, all I have to offer is the small price of having to ramble on about sports for 30 minutes. So first things first, the Wolverines are going to what has in recent years been a second home for them. The basketball team travels to Evanston today where they will take on the Northwestern Wildcats in a late season Big Ten tilt Uh on on paper, this looks like a pretty solid matchup between two teams on the NCAA tournament bubble. Michigan probably has a better non-conference schedule in its favor, probably has better wins on its resume, and is thus probably more secure than Northwestern as far as 
uh, getting into the NCAA tournament is concerned. But if you had you know, said this a couple weeks ago, you would have been looked at like a crazy person because Northwestern, uh, on the heels of a victory in the Kohl Center at Wisconsin, who at the time was a top 10 ranked basketball team, looked to be poised to make the NCAA tournament for the first time in its school's history. Not only were they poised to make it, they were a lock at that point. But since then, things have gone south for the Wildcats, as things tend to do for a team that has not made the NCAA tournament.